Um, as always, it's always a privilege for us to have the opportunity to preach the word to you guys, and I don't take this time lightly. And I hope you guys have been enjoying these Ecclesiastes series because the insights we've been gleaning from Solomon has been really interesting. And although the outcome and some of his observations lean towards the more pessimistic side, what we can tell from the observation is that he's being really honest with his observations, right? Because he's pessimistic, we know that he's being honest, and what that means is when he says some things are really good, we can trust him. In the same way that when we do have a really optimistic friend, we've all got one of those, right? Some, someone who's always happy, even if everyone else is upset, they're saying, you know, praise God, praise God, all that kind of stuff. But when that friend has a really sad day, you know something has gone wrong. So in the same way, when Solomon, in his observations, are a little bit pessimistic and he says a few things are good in life, that they're God's gifts for us to cherish, we can trust him. So what are some of those things he's covered so far in the first six chapters? He says a few things. He says, despite the fact that we have to toil, there is still the gift of eating, drinking, and working. There's still gifts that we can cherish. He also says that God gives various times and seasons for us to enjoy. And this isn't just seasons of summer, winter, spring, and autumn, but he's also talking about seasons of mourning, seasons of joy, seasons of uh, dancing, seasons of tearing, and a few very various types of life seasons as well. The last thing he says is that um, there's nothing better for us to be joyful and to do good for as long as we live. And then now we get to chapter 7, and he says one other thing is also really good, and this is God's gift as well, and that's the gift of wisdom, so that we don't have to live lives foolishly while we're here on earth. So Pastor Benny preached on the first 10 verses last week, and I'm going to continue on from verse 11 to 25. So if you read with me with Ecclesiastes 7, verse 11 to 25, I will be reading from the CSB translation this morning. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance or money and an advantage to those who see the sun because wisdom is protection as silver is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Consider the work of God for who can straighten out what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider... God has made one as well as the other, so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. In my futile life, I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. Don't be excessively righteous, and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And don't be excessively wicked, and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip from your hand, for the one who fears God will end up with both of them. Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than ten rulers of a city, and there is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. Don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servants cursing you, for you in your heart know that many times you yourself have cursed others as well. And I've tested all this by wisdom. I resolved, I will be wise, but it was beyond me. What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? So I turned to my thoughts to know, explore, and examine wisdom and an explanation for things and to know that wickedness is stupidity and folly is madness. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we just want to thank you again for the opportunity to have your word freely spoken in this city. And God, we just pray, the Holy Spirit, you will speak to every single one of us here today, that as your word is being spoken, that you would encourage, you will inspire, and you will convict our hearts to turn our lives more to you. 
So God, we pray for life change to happen in this space in the next 25, 30 or so minutes, and may all glory go to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I've got three points for us this morning, and the first point is this. Money is good, but wisdom is better. In the first part of this passage, it says that wisdom and money are good things in life. It says that both of them provides protection, or in your translation, it might say shelter, um, to the challenges of our lives. And we know this to be true, right, even in our everyday life. Think about it. For money as an example, having money means that you can buy insurance for things like your house, your car, your phone, and things like that, just to give you a peace of mind, just in case something unfortunate happens. And even if you don't have insurance, having money means that you have the ability to replace or to rebuild if something breaks down or um, gets lost. Unless you're a kinetic or a vibe person, if you lose a phone, we all have one of those friends who has a phone and then <laughs> a week later drops it into the toilet bowl and has to replace it, right? And, <laughs> sorry, I'm just looking at someone right now that has actually done that. So, so, um, so unless you're in kinetic or vibe, then that $1,000 may seem like a lot for a student, but for someone who has money, we have the ability to replace it. But it's not just for materialistic replacement as well. Having money means that even for cases like emergencies, if a loved one falls ill, we have the ability to provide for emergency medical treatment or a surgery so that our loved ones literally can be protected and their lives can be saved. So generally speaking, Solomon's saying that having money is not a bad thing at all. Because sometimes at church, when we talk about the topic of finances, half the time we talk about giving and tithing, and the other half we talk about the dangers of loving money. Both of them are true, but Solomon is just simply adding an observation to say that money itself is not bad. Actually, it serves as a really great source of protection for our lives. But then he compares this with wisdom. He says that wisdom is better because not only does it protect, but it also preserves your life. As Pastor Benny mentioned last week, wisdom helps us essentially to live with the long-term view in mind. Right? So what wisdom does, it helps us think about the implications of our decisions so that we don't just succumb to what's going to give us immediate satisfaction and pleasure, but rather what's actually good for us long term. Take a look at the prodigal son, for example, in Luke chapter 15 that some of us are familiar with. It was a son who received his father's inheritance early, so he had the money. But because he was foolish and he wasn't wise, he ended up squandering all his wealth and he had nothing left, and he wasted it. He could have used the money to protect, but he was foolish, and it was wasted. And in the same way, having wisdom for us today helps us to protect our lives from doing stupid things like speeding unnecessarily or overdosing on medication. Um, and it also preserves our lives because it encourages us and guides us to do good things in life. Things like eating healthily, exercising regularly, something that I still struggle to do, um, saving diligently, uh, connecting with people relationally, and all those things that preserves our lives to ensure that we live longer and more fulfilled lives. So, so wisdom can protect and it can preserve. But it does one more thing. And as you read on from verse 13 to 14, it says, it shows you that wisdom also helps you appreciate your life. It helps you appreciate your limited understanding of life. The Bible says this, it says in verse 13, consider the work of God for who can straighten out what he has made crooked. What Solomon is saying is that there will always be aspects and questions in life that God has allowed to remain incomprehensible to us. And wisdom, what it does is that it humbles you to realize, and not just realize, but also gladly accept 
that these things are some things that God may know why, but we don't, and we're okay with that because we acknowledge that ultimately God is the one in control of life and not us. I know sometimes it can be really frustrating to not know why to some of the bigger life questions. Why did my girlfriend break up with me, you know, when I did everything I can to love her? Why did my family, you know, my mum, my dad, my sibling, my closest friend have to pass away from a sickness when I prayed so desperately for God to heal? Why do some people like us get to hear the gospel week in, week out? when there are people groups across the nations that never in their lifetimes get to hear the gospel at all. How is that fair? And some of these questions are really real, and some of us here know people that have turned away from the faith because of these questions being unable to be answered. But what wisdom does is it reminds us that God is ultimately in control and he has given us the things that we do need to know on this side of eternity, gives us the ability to appreciate what he has revealed to us, but reminds us to trust God in the things that he has yet to reveal. And this isn't a call to be ignorant. I'm not saying we don't need to know things. I I am saying that our faith is not just blind, but it's informed. And I believe Christianity is something that is both intellectually credible and experientially satisfying. But there is incredible wisdom in not saying, I must know all the answers unless otherwise it can't be true. But instead saying, I don't know, but God most likely does, and I'm okay with that. Serenity prayer is a prayer that's been a very helpful prayer for those in support groups such as AA, Alcoholic Anonymous. And I think this prayer sums up this point really well. And this is what it says. Oh God, grant me the serenity to accept what cannot change, courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace. Taking as he did, Jesus, this sinful world as it is, not, that I, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. That I may be reasonably happy in this life, but more importantly, be supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. So money is good and wisdom is better because it protects, it preserves, and it helps you appreciate your life. And that leads me to my second point, which may seem a little bit counterintuitive, but this is it. That wisdom is better, but it still has its limitations. As good as wisdom is, it still has its limitations. And in verse 15 to 18, let me read it out loud one more time. Solomon says this, in my futile life, I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives, in, uh, lives long in spite of his evil. Don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip from your hand. For the one who fears God will end up with both of them. Or in the ESV translation, for the one who fears God will avoid both extremes. This is something that Solomon observes in this world, and it's very true, that unlike some of our Dixar, uh, Dixar, Pixar and Disney movies, sorry, <laughs> Disney and Pixar movies, that the good doesn't always win, and it's not always happily after for the good people. But sometimes the righteous people face suffering, and the bad people seem to prosper, at least if we look in light of uh, the temporal life under the sun. And what's his advice after this? It's a little bit confusing at first, because he's saying we shouldn't strive to be too righteous. 
what does it mean? Is he trying to, why is he saying that being overly wise will destroy you? Is he saying that you shouldn't be too good? Is he promoting some kind of moral apathy where he's saying, since the good doesn't always win anyway, don't try too hard? Well, I don't think that's what he's trying to say, but I think what Solomon is trying to say is that some people are not too righteous in terms of the Jesus kind of righteousness, but some people are too self-righteous and that they have an obsession out of their pride to always have to prove that they are right and to prove their point. And he's saying that that kind of behavior where you kind of become kind of like a know-it-all, that behavior can be destructive, both emotionally and physically. And you may end up alienating the people around you and cause more enemies than friends. Take a look at the Pharisees for an example. We sometimes give them a really kind of negative, harsh judgment just because we always see them as the, the people doing the wrong thing. But actually, they were the wise people in their time, weren't they? They were really devout in their scriptures. They really lived righteously as best as they can for God. But what was their issue? The issue was that they allowed their righteousness to turn into self-righteousness, where sometimes at the expense of condemning others, they would do that just to exalt themselves. We see that when one of the Pharisees is at the temple and he's praying, and we read this, right, in the Gospels, and he's praying and he goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like the sinners around, especially not like that tax collector, because I fast two days a week and I give a tenth of my income all the time. At the expense of condemning the other and alienating that person, the Pharisee's self-righteousness tried to exalt himself. And that kind of behavior doesn't just destroy the relationships around you, but ultimately, it pushes you away from a relationship with God because you believe that you can do enough to earn your salvation. And even for me personally, some of you guys know that in 2015, I was a youth leader at my old church. And in my first year youth leading, as a young guy, I wanted to just do a lot to make an impact, you know? And I was following some of all these tips by this guy called John Maxwell. If you don't know him, he's kind of like a, a well-known Christian leadership coach. So since he's so well-known, what he says must be right. So he says, vision inspires. So I charted them a new vision to try and inspire my team. He said, leaders, leaders must chart the course. So I started heading in this new direction so that people can follow. Leaders must be the change makers. So I implemented all these changes to the systems and programs to try and make the ministry more effective and more efficient. And don't get me wrong, all those things are good things. Leaders should, should do those things. But I was so caught up in being right that I lost sight of the fact that the big part of leadership is not so much in the leading, but a big part of leadership is in the listening. And before long, it didn't even take a few months for my entire leadership team to be dissatisfied with the way I was leading because I was ignoring their opinions. I was going ahead, steamrolling without their say, without listening to what they had to say. And basically, I just stopped being a friend. Who cares? I was so self-righteous and so prideful that I had to look back and apologize for the way I was leading. Pastor Benny paraphrases, uh, paraphrasing Pastor Benny a little bit, he says, the right thing done in the wrong time or in the wrong manner is still the wrong thing to do. So how about you? In your role as a, maybe as a parent, maybe as a spouse, as a colleague, or maybe even a supervisor or employer, or even, even as a connect group leader, are there times when your pride caused you as a result of the way you ended up conducting yourself out of pride caused more division and tension than unity. It could be a strategic work meeting in the office. It could be a theological discussion in your connect groups. It could just be a coffee catch up with a mate. Are there times when out of your obsession to prove your point, 
that you ended up causing your friend to leave more judged than loved. So that's one observation, one limitation, sorry, that uh, Solomon observes about wisdom, that just because you're right, it doesn't mean you always do things right. It takes humility to not allow your self-righteousness to turn into, sorry, to righteousness to turn into self-righteousness. One more limitation that he observes is that no matter how wise someone can become, someone as wise as Solomon, he still says that you're unable to attain full wisdom and true righteousness. He says this in verse 20. He says, there's certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. And he says this again in verse 23, that I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? So there's this clear limitation to human thinking and behavior that prevents us from always being right. Because firstly, God allows some things to be unknowable. And secondly, we all have sin and that prevents us to be fully righteous. But the interesting thing is this. Solomon is actually completely correct in his observations, but his observation was one in his time, and he didn't have the privilege to meet someone who many of us here know about, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon is right in saying that no one is righteous. And even in Romans 3, Paul says this, that the Jews and the Gentiles are all alike, and they're under the power of sin, for there is no one righteous. But what he didn't know is that in Hebrews 4.15 is that it says that Jesus is the one who has been tempted in every single way just as we are, yet he did not sin. And it also says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. Essentially, Jesus is the only true righteous person who personifies the full extent of wisdom for us. And that leads me to my third and final point. Although human wisdom has its limitations, true wisdom is found in following Jesus. There's a story of a man who lives in the hills and on one cold, snowy winter's night, he opens the door and he finds a few birds kind of struggling in the snow because of the cold. He looks back to his brightly lit house and a warmly lit fireplace and he goes, the house must be a better place for the birds to stay the night. So he goes out to try and grab the birds, but as he gets closer, the birds just scatter away in fear. So he tries a different tactic. He walks around the other side and tries to shepherd them into the house, but it doesn't help because the birds are just scattering in many different directions and they're afraid of the man. And out of a moment of frustration, he calls out to himself and he goes, ah, I wish just for a moment I could speak, I could be a bird and speak their language just to tell them the house that I want to lead you to is safe. At that moment, Suddenly, far away, the church bells happen to ring for a Christmas service to signal that the service is about to start. And he realized for the first time why Jesus had to come to earth in the form of a man to proclaim God's message to the world. There's a difference between Solomon's time and for us today, because for us today, wisdom is not this mysterious thing out there that we cannot discover or fathom, but wisdom is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we walk alongside Jesus, we see his incredible love change us. And we see that Jesus, in his perfectness, still chose to die for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God and enjoy him for eternity. And as we walk with him, we gain from him wisdom that is actually from above. And this wisdom doesn't just help us to live life in the long term, just to protect us for the temporary or to preserve our lives for a little bit more, but it helps us to live our lives in light of eternity. 
And these two sound kind of similar, right? Long-term eternity, long-term eternity, even though, because they're both kind of futuristic thinking. But the, the difference between the two is so significant, and it completely, completely changes the way you live your life now. And I want to take a little bit of time to just emphasize on this difference. So I've got a little prop with me here. Um, this is actually an illustration that you, you may have seen on YouTube by a guy called Francis Chan. He uses a rope, but I thought I would use a toilet paper for today. Okay? So as I... Oh, that didn't work. As I stretch this across... Okay, I'm too, ex too excited, sorry. As I stretch this across, this... Imagine that this represents eternity in time. It stops over there, but just imagine that it goes on forever and ever and ever. And this represents eternity in time. Only this first piece of square represents our time here on Earth. So actually, we're all here. So let's take a look. If this piece of paper is about eight centimeters long, and an average man lives about 80 years old in Australia, I'm 29, so I'm probably about here. Some of you guys here from Kinetic are a little bit younger. Maybe they're 15, early in the track. And some of you at the back, the aunties and uncles, 30, maybe? 30, so you're about midway of this timeline. But the point is this. The point is that every single one of us are simply on this single piece of paper. And if you believe that there is a God and you believe that there is a heaven and hell, what you also believe in is that death is not the end here, but death is simply a transition point for all of this. And what the Bible says is that how you spend your life here significantly impacts how you live your life for all of that. And so many of us here, we are wise people. We do try to live with the long term in mind. And I have to applaud some of the decisions you guys make because of that. And it really encourages and inspires me as well because it's so selfless and really loving. For example, many of you don't here just save to pay off your mortgages. You save so that you can provide for your children's future. Some of you even save to provide for your grandchildren's future. For that, I think it's incredible. Some of you guys here really love your spouse and your families. And because of that, you have no issues working overtime, time and time and again, week after week, year after year, so that they can live a slightly more comfortable life. That's your expression of love, and that's amazing. For those of us, some of us here who are in impact in that kind of young adult working age like myself, unlike the uni days when we kind of had to just plan for the next two or three years, we now have to make decisions that impacts our next 20, 30 years. And the decisions you make because of that is really respectful as well. And I applaud you for that as well. These are all great things. But what we have to realize is that all that stuff that we do, if we're living just for the long term, we're investing and trying so hard here just so that we can enjoy this little bit there. But what about all of that? How are you investing in your life so that you're not just benefiting the last 20 or 30 years of your life and your family and your friend's life, but how are you instead investing your time and energy in such a way that is benefiting them for the millions of years that's to come? So to live for the long term, sometimes we think it's this kind of wise thing to do and that, you know, it's just like it's living long term is wise, but living for eternity is just a little bit more wise. I would say the opposite. It's possible that some of the things that you live for the long term that everyone else is applauding, when you get to this point, you would instantly regret. 
because those things may not have impacted your eternity at all or could have been actually detrimental to it. To give you an example, as a, still in my first year of marriage, a lot of people like to, out of good intention, give us marriage advice, and a lot of them have been really, really great. One advice is that to build our marriage so that it's strong and thriving for the years ahead, something you should do is spend the first couple years building on your relationship with each other. Work on each other, prioritize each other, love each other, so that in the years ahead, when you have family, when you have kids, when you face financial issues, you've got that strong foundation to continue to support one another well. That's really good advice, isn't it? But is it possible that what could help our marriages thrive even more is that throughout our marriage, we keep emphasizing on eternity that what we are doing here, whether good or bad, whether prosperity or adversity, is just a temporary location. That all this here is really just a preparation years for us to enjoy eternity there. So instead of building our lives well here so that we can enjoy this, we are building our lives here so that we can enjoy all of that it completely changes the way you choose to live your life. So if you're with me now and you're saying, okay, long-term, eternity, very different things, but what can I do now? To boil it down, I can boil it down succinctly maybe to two points. The first point is to grow in your understanding that Jesus is your savior. And the second is to grow in conforming our lives where Jesus becomes Lord over more of our lives. The first is that if you're not yet currently considering yourself as a Christian, you don't believe in Jesus, then the most important thing you can do that will benefit your eternity is to come to a point where you see that Jesus really did save your life. Jesus, as the perfect Lamb of God, came down on earth in perfection, but came and bore the cost of our sins so that we can be made right with a holy, righteous God and enjoy eternity with Him. That's a really important decision that if you're still in the process of considering Keep talking to your Christian friends. I would love to have a coffee chat with you and talk about how important that decision is and how incredible Jesus is as our Savior. But for many of us here who do call ourselves Christian, perhaps the more important thing to think about is are you constantly thinking about how Jesus is becoming Lord in your life? The Bible talks about Jesus as Savior kind of about 20 times in the New Testament, but it talks about Jesus as Lord over 600 times. Which do you think God is placing the emphasis on, on how we should see Jesus? So part of our journey as Christians is to keep growing in this journey where we become more and more like Jesus, where more of how Jesus wants us to live our lives becomes how we live our lives because we trust him more than we trust ourselves, and we know that as we follow him, the wisdom that he gives us is beneficial for eternity. And he promises us that as we do those things, he will give us life and life abundantly, both for the present and for the future. So as I invite the keys back up, I want to close by just giving us, um, showing you one of my all-time favorite uh, illustrations or cartoons. It's an illustration I stumbled across the internet many years ago, and what you see is Jesus asking a little girl to give up her teddy bear. And the little girl is saying, but I really like it, you know? And Jesus is saying, but just trust me. And we see behind Jesus that there's a bigger teddy bear that Jesus wants to give the little girl. When I first came across this image when I was 23, I had just ended a relationship with a, with a girl. And just like any other teenager, any other young adult, I was absolutely devastated. Um, and I thought I was encouraged by this image because I thought what it's trying to say is that Jesus wants to give me a better girlfriend. <laughs> but over the years, as I reflected on this image a little bit more, 
I don't think it's meant to be a direct correlation. I don't think it's trying to say, if you give up your relationship, God will give you a better one. If you give up your Honda Jazz, God's gonna give you a Mercedes C-Class. If you throw away your iPhone 10 to Jesus, he's gonna give you an iPhone 12. I don't think those are the things that he's trying to say. But what I think Jesus is trying to say is that whatever it is you're holding that you value as more precious and unable to let go, you should learn to let it go because Jesus can offer you more. So what is the greatest gift that Jesus can give you if we learn to trust him? Is it blessings in life? Is it a fulfilling family and marriage? Is it the assurance that we'll get to go to heaven forever? Perhaps not. What's interesting about this image is that it could be misleading in a way that the best gift that Jesus can give you is not actually the teddy bear behind him. The best gift that Jesus can give you is himself. And sometimes as we live life, we think that living life is about letting go of some sacrifices so that we can benefit more in the future. Maybe if I let go of some of my career ambitions, work a few less hours, I can spend more time with my family. That's the bigger teddy bear that Jesus can give me. Maybe if I learn to really value my singleness and who I am in Christ first, rather than pursuing relationships, maybe later on God will give me a better girlfriend or boyfriend who really loves the Lord. That's the bigger teddy bear that Jesus can give me. But as we do that, we're losing sight of the fact that the greatest gift Jesus can give us is actually himself, a relationship with him. Because that's something that changes our life now, but we will continue to change us all the way through to the transition point, and after into eternity, we'll continue to enjoy and cherish and love. It's the one thing that will carry on into eternity that makes all the difference in the world now as well. And perhaps he's saying that we need to put aside some of these things that are distracting us for the long term because we're so preoccupied with the next 10, 20 years of our lives that we're forgetting that we wanna keep cultivating this relationship with Jesus. So the encouragement for this morning really is just this. If you wanna live your life wisely in a way that impacts your eternity, take the time to get to know Jesus. Take the time to love him in a deeper way. Take the time for the Holy Spirit to give you a holy dissatisfaction as to where you are now with your walk with God and say, God, I want more because I know you can offer me more, more than any other teddy bear or blessings can. And my encouragement today is that there is absolutely nothing more precious than the gift of knowing Jesus and for that to change every other aspect of your life. So church, can I ask you all to stand? To wrap up this morning, I actually would love the opportunity for you guys to all pray for one another because I think church should be a house of prayer and prayer to one another is a very powerful tool to point us back to God as well. Could be the person next to you who is your spouse or your friend. Could be someone you don't know. That's totally fine because we're all one family here. So just make sure you look around and make sure that no one's left behind. If it's not pairs, threes are totally okay as well. But I want you guys to pray for one another for two things. The first thing is to pray for the fact that we grow in our understanding that Jesus is our Savior. That's an incredible thing. 
in the same way that we don't have questions to answers to why to a lot of difficult questions of suffering and, and dissatisfaction, we also can't answer why this incredible God who is King of all kings and God of all gods chose to come down on earth in humility to die for us. That's an incredible, extravagant act of love that we don't have an answer to. But we just know that that happened and we can thank him for that. And for those of us who are Christians, the fact that he is our savior has, has to change more than just the fact that we now know where we're going for eternity. It must change our lives now in the way that we relate to God and to one another. And we can pray for one another that Jesus becomes Lord, especially over the areas of life that we're uncomfortable with, especially over areas of life where everyone else is telling you doing this will be smart for the next 10 years and you're saying, no, 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 I will do that because that's meaningful for eternity. And to have the courage and the boldness that I believe can only come from the Holy Spirit to help you pull through and live life that way. So if it's okay, I'll just ask you guys to turn to your friends and to your family, to your connect group members around you now. Just spend a little bit of time praying for one another, and then I'll close for us all.